on Tuesday night after Pumpkin Fest, it is my annual face cleaning. It's the cleanest anyone's face can be after, uh, especially some of the guys that I umpire during the summer show up to help themselves through wet sponges. I took a couple of shots last year at Pumpkin Fest, and I can't remember part of Pumpkin Fest. It's a, it's a secret to me what happened. I was lost. Some of those 13-year-olds came up, and uh, they couldn't throw a baseball over the plate, but they can throw a sponge at an umpire. It's amazing capacity. It's good to be with you. I, I know you're all caught up this morning. Everything's fine. All your homework's done for the next few classes, and uh, prayed up for all those things. It's hard to know what to talk about when you come to chapel. For some of you who attend Grace, what I'm about to say will sound very familiar. Uh, I preached it Sunday. Um, <laughs> with these days trying to write a thesis, I'm trying to write a master's thesis. That's a 150-page pamphlet. And uh, I don't have time for uh, making up new stuff between Sundays. So uh, for those of you who this sounds familiar, thank goodness you remember what happened Sunday. Okay. <laughs> I came across an article about a member of the British royalty who was about 75 years ago touring the Fiji or Fijian Islands in the South Pacific. He was an unbeliever and he was critical as he was talking to one of the elderly leaders of a group of people there in the islands and he said to this elderly chief, you're a great leader but he said it's a pity you've been taken in by those foreign missionaries. They only want to get rich through you. No one believes the Bible anymore. People are tired of hearing the threadbare story of Christ dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. They know better now. I'm sorry you've been so foolish to accept the story of these missionaries. The old chief's eyes flashed. He answered. He said, see that great rock over there? On it, we smash the heads of our victims. Notice the furnace next to it? In that oven, we formerly roasted the bodies of our enemies and ate them. If it hadn't been for those good missionaries and the love of Jesus that changed us from cannibals into Christians, you'd never leave this place alive. He said, you'd better thank the Lord for the gospel, otherwise we'd be having you for supper. The gospel has incredible benefits some of them very practical in certain places. When it changes cannibals into God-fearing, God-loving people, that stops some other people from being supper. The hardest thing for me in the last few weeks as I've been studying the Gospel of Mark is to understand why people who have a Christ who heals, who feeds, who took a bunch of backward fishermen and turned them into incredible ministering agents, how anyone would want to kill that Christ or would be skeptical, as this man was in the islands, of the gospel that has incredible benefit and impact on the lives of people. It's hard to understand. If you'll open to the Gospel of Mark, though, chapter 12, you'll find out they wanted to kill him. Early on in the Gospel of Mark, Mark records for us the fact that there were people around Jesus who wanted to kill him. And as I wrestle with that and knowing the eternal demand of the death of Christ, I still struggle as a human being figuring out why would people want to kill a guy if you thought of him just as a human who healed people? Blind people could now see. Lepers 
who had been uh, suffering from a disease that was the scourge of their society were now clean and could be back with their families and work and back in the towns in which they lived. In fact, people who had lost family members that had died, Jesus had raised some from the dead. Why would you want to kill a guy like this? If you read closely the gospel account, you'll find that the animosity toward Jesus developed along two lines. I wish I could tell you it was because the people around Jesus severely disagreed with his theology. They took incredible difference with his position on the interpretation of the Old Testament. Such was not the case. Two items were at stake that provoked the enemies of Jesus, in fact, made them enemies. Number one was authority or power. And number two was popularity. Slowly but surely, this strange prophet from Galilee was developing an incredible following. It rivaled, even was past the rival now of John the Baptist. And the religious leaders of Israel were jealous. First of all, they were scared. Their authority, their leverage over the people was slowly going away. And their popularity. They were not being sought out. Their power was diminishing. Their popularity was reduced. And friends and neighbors, whenever popularity or power shifts from one to another, the one who loses gets real angry at the one who gets those things. They were losing and they knew it. In Mark 12, look at verse 12 and you'll see. Jesus in the first 11 verses has stung them with the parable of the vineyard. He has clearly identified them as the men who have rejected his prophets in the form of the rent collectors on the vineyard and now have indicated and he himself predicts his own death at their hand. And this parable is not nearly as code filled as some others. His critics pick it up and in verse 12 you get their response. And the brother, excuse me, I'm reading in chapter 13, that won't work. Mark 12, 12. They were seeking to seize him. Yet they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them, so they left him and went away. They were afraid of what the people would do because Jesus was now popular and they weren't. Were they to take this popular hero by force and in some way do away with him, they feared now the wrath of the people. This is the last week of Jesus' life. I've brought you in to probably Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion and resurrection. Now they changed their tactic. Starting in verse 13, I want you to notice how the Lord Jesus begins to encounter the assaults, literally, there are three of them, in the text we'll look at this morning, the assaults of his enemies. They didn't like the healer. They didn't like the man who fed the multitudes. They didn't like the man who, by his message and power, made of people something they never thought they could be. And they respond. And they raise issues. These are explosive things. The first assault is a political assault. Look at verse 13. And they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're truthful. You defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Political. Of course, you've got to understand, folks, when we have enemies... And we will have them for the gospel's sake. Strange affiliations or associations or alliances come together. When you look at that first few words of the 13th verse, you see two contradictory people. 
Normally, the Herodians and the Pharisees had nothing to do with each other. The Herodians were the Roman puppet governors, the political figurehead of the Romans in Israel. They were assistants in the oppression of their own countrymen under the guise of the family of Herod. The Pharisees were the preserver of the truth. He was the one who interpreted and explained the law. He was the one who strongly held to God's love of Israel, Israel's prominence. These two would hardly ever get together. But when it came to their common enemy, Christ, they bound together and they bring to him an opportunity. Dr. Luke says in his account of this that they were spies that came to him. Now, if someone comes to you, let's say your roommate comes to you or uh, someone in, let's say your roommate, let's just stop there. Your roommate comes to you and says, oh, great friend of my room. <laughs> you who share everything so lovingly and keep your half so neat. You who would give me on a moment's notice that clothing that I would need to impress that special person. You who are esteemed in my family, whose name I have mentioned over phone and by letter as one who is worthy of all love and compassion and respect. If your roommate come to you and said that, what would you do? Call 911. Why? They're sick. Or they've had a stroke. Or what? They want something. They're up to something. Now keep that in mind when you read verse 14. Look at it closely. And they came to him and said, now this is the same people who didn't seize him right after the parable because of the people. They say, teacher, we know that you're truthful and you defer to no one. They come to him and they say, rabbi, you're special. You're unique. Notice they say further, for you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Now, without sounding too sarcastic, I'll make a big point out of this a little later. Listen to your critics. Even though sometimes their comments to you may be ensnared in flattery, you're going to learn more about your character from your critics than you may learn from your friends. These people were trying to find flaw. They were trying to trick Jesus, and yet they had to commend him for the fact that he treated everybody the same and he spoke the truth about God correctly and accurately no matter who was around. But they're setting him up, aren't they? Look at the end of the verse. There's the stinger. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? And most of us in our day, we read that and we think, well, no big deal. So what's the big deal? When it came to this tax, if any of you in, in days yet future, some of you already paying them, but in days yet future, April 15th will not be a blessed day in your life. Right now, most of you are getting money back, but a day is coming when you're not going to get any back, you're going to owe more. And so when the idea of tax, just tax alone is irritating. And notice how the Lord Jesus responds to this particular thing. It was an explosive political issue in their day. You throw on the scene abortion. Uh, you throw on the scene some of the moral issues that are becoming in the minds of some political issues that are so explosive and people are divided. This was on a par with that. Look at verse 15. Shall we pay or shall we not? Isn't it a pain when people say yes or no? Don't explain it. Just say yes or no. Typical critics approach. But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, verse 15, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought him one. And he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. What's going on here? When he asked for the coin... The idea was in Israel that there was an annual tax on every male over a certain age. 
And that tax was sent directly to the imperial treasury. It wasn't used for road improvements or anything else. It went right into the hip pocket of the rulers. And whenever a Jew had to pay that, it was particularly irritating for two reasons. Number one, Jesus asked, whose inscription is on it and whose image? And they said, Caesar. And when a Jew usually in Jesus' day said Caesar, his teeth ground and his stomach got upset. Because Caesar stopped being a person in the Roman Empire and started being an office. And those who called themselves Caesar believed themselves to be gods. Therefore, when they paid that tax with that coin, they had to pay with a coin that had the picture of a man on it who rivaled their god Jehovah, who said he was God, and that irritated them. And number two, it was a tax taken from a people who were oppressed. They didn't have a right to say over that tax. It was a tax. So economically and religiously, it was irritating. And Jesus handled it very well. In fact, when you look at it, you think, Jesus could have been a good politician. Verse 17, that's pretty slick. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the God the things that are God's. And the first thought is he answered it, but he didn't. But he did. You see, in this statement, this thoughtful, wise answer of the master to this incredibly explosive thing, and you say, well, what's, what's so important? If he would have said, that's right, pay to Caesar, and didn't go any further, the Herodians would have been ecstatic, but the Pharisees would have been enraged. If he says, don't pay to Caesar, that pompous, God-thinking person, don't pay him at all. They're the oppressors of our land. The Herodians would have had him arrested for treason. So he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, Jesus is saying in embryonic form what Paul will explain and amplify in Romans 13. God establishes governments. How many of you came to school today that drove here on a road? I know some of them out here don't qualify for roads, but you know. Most of you came here on a road and, and most of you got here and uh, if uh, there was anything out of order, uh, Caltrans was there. God love them. <laughs> Takes eight of them to move one brick, but that's Caltrans, okay? <laughs> and we have police and we have all those things. And if you guys uh, somewhere up in the dorm here, if you have a fire, you call 911. They come and when they leave, they don't present you with a bill, do they? That's one of the benefits of government. In the days of the Jews, no matter how much the Jews disliked the Romans, they had roads. They could get where they, wherever the Romans went, they built roads. They had order. They had a legal system. Those were benefits of government. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. In other words, this government has provided some things for you. Pay your tab. You have a debt to them. Pay it. Don't pay more, but pay a debt. Is Caesar God? No. Look at the second half of his answer. What does he say? Render unto God, he uses the word clearly, the God Jehovah, render unto God the things that are God's. Sharp, huh? Clear. Caesar's not God. And he's not everything, but he has his due. But remember, you must keep in balance, God has his. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Politically handled, and they walked away. And what was the result of the people? What did they think? Last line, verse 17, and they were amazed at him. Okay, Exit. First assault. Herodians, Pharisees, out the door. Now who shows up? Look at verse 18. Sadducees. Who are all these guys? The Sadducees were the priestly group. They were the ones, if you went into the temple to offer your sacrifices and so on, they would be the ones that you would primarily deal with. They were the elite. There was a smaller number of them. 
They were the priestly class. It is from the Sadducees that the high priest of Israel came. But notice Mark's comment. Very interesting parenthesis. Mark 18, 12, chapter 12, verse 18. And some Sadducees who say there is no what? No resurrection. Interesting. The people who were the leaders in the religious ceremony of Israel denied the supernatural. What a delight to have a guy like that offer your sacrifice to God. He's your sacrificial representative, but he doesn't believe in resurrection. They also rejected the idea of angels. Mark puts in there they don't. You'll also find it in the book of Acts. They came to him and they began questioning him, saying... Now, some of you have heard this before. It's, this is the most incredible, absurd, hypothetical I've ever heard in my life. Teacher, they say, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. They were right. That was in the Bible, Deuteronomy 26. If a man died and he hadn't had any children, male, that his brother was to take his widow and to marry her and to have children. It was a way of protecting property and name and seeing that things stayed as they were. It's in the law. There was a guy named Onan in the Bible who tried to get around this process and God killed him. So it's something serious. Verse 20. Notice. There were seven brothers. You've got to be kidding and the first took a wife and died, leaving no offspring. And the second one took her and died, leaving behind no offspring. And the third likewise. And then these guys who do not believe in the resurrection now say, And so all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Thank God, the poor lady. She's lived through seven weddings. That would send anyone to glory. Verse 23. Here, now listen close. Have you ever had discussions with people around and, and they argue a point that they don't even believe in? That's what they do. Look at verse 23. In the resurrection, which Mark has already told you in verse 18, they don't believe in. But in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. You've got to be kidding. This is absurd. Well, you say, well, what kind of assault is this? This is a family assault. Do you want to tug at the heartstrings of someone? Talk about a lady who's lost her husband and has no children. Talk about a lady who had seven husbands, was widowed seven times. That really pulls at the heart. It's the family type of argument. Notice Jesus' response. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're mistaken? You do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? You don't understand. You guys are presenting something you don't even believe in as a possibility. Verse 25. For they rise, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And you say, I was telling our folks at church the other day, there are some wives and husbands out there when Jesus said this, say, oh, thank God. When I'm in heaven, he won't know me. Okay. That's the wrong reason for adopting that doctrine, okay? It's, it's one of the questions when you guys go into churches and some of you go into ministering, invariably when you go to a funeral, and I have to go to two of them this afternoon, when you go to a funeral, there's going to be some question, some lovely lady will walk up to you who is just putting to rest her husband of 52 years, and she says, Pastor Tom, will I know him when I get to heaven? Will we still be married to you? Was so much and there are in your lives I pray ahead of you that person in your life that God will give you that will be your life you will love them 
You will share everything in life with them. God being gracious to you, you'll have children and you'll try to raise them together and you'll go through all that stuff and they are so vital, so important, so much a part of your experience now. For Jesus to say, in heaven there is no marriage, for those of us who are deeply in love in this life, that is hard to get a hold of. My theory on this, for you to discuss and debate later on, is that when we get to heaven, we might know, the Bible indicates we'll be known as we're known, we might know who our husband or our wife and our children are, but because of the incredible new dimension in which we live there, which John describes as when we see him, we'll be like him. I may know my wife, Sharon, and I may know my daughter, Beth, and the boys, Tommy and Joel, but it won't matter. It will not affect me there as it affects me now because I will be absolutely removed from anything sinful and I will be in his wonderful glory and those things, those relationships were absolutely, and I love them, and were crucial in this life, will pale in glory. That's how good glory is, not how bad family is. And by the way, Jesus stuck in here angels. Did you notice it's Jesus who inserts angels here? He uses as his example, there are angels, but they don't, there's not he angels and she angels and little cherubs that hang over with hearts and play violin. <laughs> And in heaven, there aren't little angels uh, fluttering around with new wings trying to help. No. According to the book of Job, God created all spirit beings at one time. A certain portion, I don't know how many, but a bunch, rebelled with Satan. They were thrown from that place. And angel spirit beings are forever fixed in their states. There's not a place out there where angels turn into bad guys and bad angels, demons, turn into good angels. That doesn't happen. That's forever fixed. So Jesus tries to point out to these guys, you're wrong. It's like angels. There are no he angels and she angels and little angels. It's all fixed. Notice closely the text when he says, verse 26, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, you've not read in the book of Moses. You don't even know the scriptures. And the Sadducees only bought the first five books, the, the Pentateuch. That's all. He said, you guys don't even know the scriptures. And the passage, he says, how God, when he called Moses, said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God saying that at that time, how could God be the king of a graveyard? He isn't. He's the God of the living. Verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're greatly mistaken. When you see that word, those four English words at the end of verse 27, you are greatly mistaken. That's very uncomfortable language in our day. Very uncomfortable language. I'm finding it harder and harder to have people believe that it, based upon the word of God, we do have a responsibility to tell people when they're wrong. Unfortunately, in a pluralistic society where we have religious freedom, there's something else been communicated with that freedom which says you have the freedom to worship as you please. And then we've added somewhere down the line the way you worship is your business and it must be right and I can't tell you what's wrong. If any of you, they don't bother you in the dorms here, I don't think, but at our house on Saturday, last Saturday, we could go. I'm up. I deliver papers with my son at 630 in the morning. It's a tremendous spiritual experience. So I'm up and I, and I go over to the door. And here's these two nice gentlemen, one very young fellow and one older fellow, dressed in three-piece suits. Say said, hi. I said, howdy. And they said, we're in the neighborhood today, and we're encouraging people to read the Bible. I said, boy, you're in luck. We read the Bible here. And he says, oh, you do? I said, absolutely. We read the Bible at this house. He said, do you read it with any helps? I said, no. He said, could we offer you an awake magazine? I said, no. And he said, why? I said, you'd really enjoy reading your Bible more if you didn't use that magazine. 
And he said, you mean you, that you won't receive a magazine? I said, we're communicating. <laughs> now, you see, in our society, in this environment, it's fairly comfortable for me to say that. But there are certain places where I go, in certain circles where I move, that if you even suggest to a person that their religion is inaccurate or in some way off, how dare you? You're so judgmental. How can you be so severe? He's American. He has the right to believe whatever he wants. That's right. And I've got a right to tell him if he's not right, he's wrong. <laughs> so please understand, you guys. Now, some of you are going to be tempted. Man, some of you, when you're younger, you guys are dangerous weapons out there, okay? Been to two or three Bible classes, you've got this baby nailed down, and you're ready to straighten out anybody who shows up in your path. <laughs> and God help those poor, unfortunate people who show up at Thanksgiving dinner after your first semester here. So hear me clearly. Don't you go out there and start correcting people unless your spirit is right. And be sure that the topics that you address, that you address them lovingly, tenderly, tactfully, and accurately based upon what the Word of God teaches. Be careful. But I tell you, the stakes are too high, people. The difference between telling a person, despite their right to freedom of religion, that based upon the Word of God, they are wrong, is the difference in eternity's location. The stakes are too high not to say so. Jesus did. He looked these Sadducees in the face and said, you are greatly mistaken. Now look, was, look who was overhearing this conversation. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came and he heard him and arguing, recognizing he had answered them well. He said, what commandment is foremost of all? They hit him politically. They hit him culturally or family. And then they stick in religion. What's the most important commandment? Jesus answered, the foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're wrong. Is that what he said? This guy wasn't picked by the Pharisees, was he? This scribe, notice the text, verse 20, 32, what does he say? You guys can speak in chapel, what did he say? Right. Amen. You got it. Now, the Lord wasn't taken back, but the Lord was impressed because not only does the guy say that's right, but he echoes it. Look, you have truly stated he is one. God is one. And there is none other beside him to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Where did this guy come from? Jesus says, verse 34, Jesus saw he had answered intelligently. He said to him. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, class was dismissed. Right? Verse 34, they went away. They wouldn't even venture to ask him any more questions. I submit to you, folks, that we have to consider that this scribe, though he may have been initially antagonistic, trying to get in on the hunt, demonstrates that he reacts to truth. He's not a believer, but Jesus says he's close to the kingdom of God. When you're in the midst of an antagonistic world and you have folks coming after you one after another, don't write off all your critics and all your enemies. Some of them may be enemies indeed, but some of them may be enemies in truth. And there are people who will respond to the truth. Jesus doesn't write this man off. He answers him correctly. By the way, his answer is very important for us today because it was an answer of loyalty and priority. All that you have and this first and this second. Generally speaking, you will find if you're having trouble here with people or wherever you're at, if you're having trouble with people, generally, not always, but generally, something's wrong vertically. 
before you try to analyze the horizontal. Being a preacher, we tend to be scatter-minded, scatter-brained, scattered many things. I want to give you five principles to think about from this passage today. There could be many others. Number one, Christ's greatest enemies and ours are still among religious people. Christ's greatest enemies, these people who came to him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were the religious leaders of his nation. May I submit to you, as you're studying the Bible and you're studying theology, most of you will find when you're studying those who are critical of Christ, historically those who attack the fact that Jesus Christ was God were not primarily pagans. They were religious people. The people today who assault the truth of the Word of God and suggest to us that the Bible in some way is a mistake, that it's filled and riddled with errors, are not primarily pagan people. They are religious people. In their own way, they have a system, religion, that they're trying to figure out God with. They acknowledge God and all of these things, the supernatural. Folks, be awake and alert. Christ's greatest enemies and ours are still among religious people. Principle number two. Replies to critics should consider their attitude, not just their assault. When you reply to critics, those who are critical, maybe you're working with somebody, maybe you just have somebody in general in your life that's a basic pain, understand and be careful that you separate their attitude from their assault. Very often, people seem like they're assaulting when they really want to know the truth. Three, critics may tell you more about your character than your friends. Critics may tell you more about your character than your friends. You see, your critics come to find flaw, but when they find something worthy, they who were looking for a flaw, that is an incredible insight into your life. The people who have told me most about my character in the last 10 years, most of the time, were people who didn't like me, people who considered themselves my critic. I learned a lot more about how God was working in my life by my critics than I did my friends. Number four, complicated living shouldn't cause us to change the truth. You say, what does that mean? You see, the Sadducees' argument for this lady who suffered through seven husbands and then herself died, they were trying to say, Jesus, this business of resurrection only complicated this lady's life because whose Wife will she be in heaven. The truth you teach complicates life, therefore it must not be true. And Jesus said, you're greatly mistaken. In this environment, maybe the truth that you're learning is working pretty well, but I'm telling you, you're going to be tempted. Because at first, when you really begin to try and live life and walk with God, it will seem as though the truth that you're trying to obey complicates your life. And you're going to be tempted to say, that must not be true. That's wrong. You say, well, what complicates my life? The fifth principle. Total loyalty and right priorities simplify godly living. Total loyalty and right priorities simplify godly living. I tell you this morning, you follow God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's going to simplify your life. You love him with all of yourself first and foremost. You love others as you love yourself. You keep those two things straight. And I submit to you, the life that you think is complicated is not nearly as complicated as you think. Total loyalty and right priorities simplify godly living. Let's pray together.